The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. So we're going to come into God's Word here in Acts 28, starting in verse 11. This is God's Word. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pudely. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God. And took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. Because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for fixing our mind today upon the grace that is in Jesus Christ. 
And so we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we moved to Green Bay a few weeks ago. I guess maybe it's been a month. And one of the first tasks I was given was to build a swing set in our backyard. Now, what I thought would be a quick trip to Menards for a few boards and a beam and some bolts turned into three weeks, at least, I think, six trips to Menards. I don't know, maybe three to six trips uh, and, and, uh, and several visits from some friends, uh, thankful to, uh, in particular, the Grimors who came over and Tim helped me hoist this giant beam up. After three weeks, though, it's done. Except for the climbing wall and a few bolts that I still need to put in, but we'll get to that later. Ross, my son, my oldest, reminds me every day, hey, you haven't finished the climbing wall, Dad. Can we do that today? You know, it'll be like 9 o'clock at night, we're trying to go to bed. Hey, can you finish that climbing wall today, Dad? No, bud. But here's something interesting. I don't know if you're, like, if you're like me like this. I finished this project. It's in my backyard. And every night this week, I found myself either standing in my backyard or standing at the back of my house staring at it. Just admiring. You know, you know what I'm saying? Just admire. Wow. Look at what we did. Isn't that neat? Remember that giant splinter I got? I'm so glad that it's done. Admiring our work. You know, there are times in life when it helps us to stop and look and, and admire. And I know we can get prideful and, and, and that's not good. But I think there are times when it's good for us to remember what has happened. To think back and, and look back at what has happened. And we've come today to the end of the book of Acts. They let the new guy on the block have the last word. So this is, this is dangerous. And the new guy hasn't preached uh, in front of a congregation in over a year. So I got a lot of things stored up in here. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. But let, let's take a, a brief look back. Pastor Dan preached the first sermon on, in this series on Acts almost exactly one year ago today. Did you know that? September 18th, 2016. Almost a year ago. Today marks the... Can anyone guess how many sermons we've had in the book of Acts? Anyone? Throw a number out there. Come on, let's hear some numbers. Any numbers? 48, close, close. Did I hear anything? Today is 42. This is the 42nd sermon. It's pretty good. Another pastor said they did it in 62, so we're under the curve there. Uh, If we were to summarize the book, what would we say? If we were to look back, and we're at the end, we look back over the whole book, how would we summarize the book of Acts? Some have called it, it's called Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Others I've heard have referred to it as the continuing Acts of the risen Jesus Christ as demonstrated through the Apostles. It's a pretty long title, that's why we go with just Acts. Either way, the story has been about God's plan to spread the gospel. It's, it's what I'm going to call today God's gospel plan. And and what is God's gospel plan as we look through the book of Acts? If we go back to the theme verse, it's Acts 1.8. And Acts 1.8 says this, You will receive power. This is Jesus. He's speaking to the disciples right before he's about to ascend. And and they're all sort of standing there like, what do we do now, Jesus? And he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, And he's sort of drawing bigger circles here. And then to the end of the earth. 
Uh, One pastor says it like this, Luke set out to chronicle the expansion of Christianity from a small beginning in Judea, a distant province of the Roman Empire, to its being a world religion and a force in many cities. And if you go through the book, you can break it down in these three big categories. Witnessing in Jerusalem, the first section, chapters 1 through 7. Witnessing in Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And then witnessing to the end of the earth, the rest of the book, chapter 13 through 28. Clearly the book is about the expansion of the gospel and the establishment of God's church. To expand the good news, taking it to the ends of the earth, to establish the church as a beacon of light, as a beacon of love, as a place where there is a message of reconciliation. Uh, There's all these metaphors used in scripture about what the church, what we're supposed to be, fishers of men, messengers of good news, all of these things. This is what the purpose of the book is about. It's to show that God's gospel plan spreads out. It is the good news that keeps going. So I want to ask this question, if that is the purpose of the book, has God's gospel plan stopped spreading? Is it still going? And if it's still going, if this plan to expand the good news and to establish the church is really happening, is this how we interpret or maybe feel about what's going on around us? What's going on inside of us? What's going on in our world? What's going on down the street? You see, at a big macro level, if we were to step back and look at everything going on, we can have a little bit of despair. I don't know if you knew this, but in recent years, it's estimated that over 3,500 churches a year are closing their doors. That's nine churches a day, a little more than nine churches a day. It's been said that the persecution of Christians throughout the world is for the modern era at an all-time high. In 10 years from 2005 to 2015, uh, according to one source, 900,000 Christians were martyred. It's an average of 90,000 Christians a year, over 246 a day. Is the gospel still going forth? Is it spreading? If you look around at America, you don't have to turn on the radio and, and scan very far to find out what's going on in our country. Disunity, uh, division, unrest at historic proportions. So the question is, is God's gospel plan really making a difference in the world today? Let's bring it home for a minute. What about us? Maybe like me, you've thought something like this. I've shared Jesus with my dad a lot, and it doesn't seem to make a difference. He still doesn't believe. Or I've shared about Jesus, I've witnessed to my neighbor a ton, but they're still not listening. They still don't, it doesn't change anything. Or maybe you've shared Jesus with your kids, but they still have moments, right? Seasons, perhaps, of disrespect and disobedience. Does it make a difference? Maybe you have a grown son or a daughter that was brought up in the church in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and now they're walking away from what you taught them. Does the gospel plan, is it making a difference? Or maybe... You're sitting here thinking, I've heard this message about Jesus a lot. But I don't feel any different. I don't have a desire for God yet. Or maybe you're just thinking, some days I don't, I don't feel impacted by this great, awesome message that everyone says it is. Some days I'm not experiencing in my heart what, what I know to be true in my head. Is something wrong? 
Is God's gospel plan still working? In 2015, I was pastoring a church in southern Illinois, uh, a little rural town. Anyone ever heard of Anna? Okay, nobody. It's south of Car. Yeah, it's, that's how small it is. And in the spring, I'd been pastoring in this church for about seven and a half years. Uh, I was a senior pastor for the last three years of those. And in April of 2015, God decided to do something big in our lives. He decided to take our three-year-old son at the time home to himself. From that moment, a whole lot of things started going crazy in our lives. And all the questions flooded, what's going on here, God? I ended up a year later stepping down from the pastorate. We believed God was calling us to leave and to step out in faith and to do something else, to into his gospel plan. We thought it was moving to Kansas City to plant a church there. And so we moved to Kansas City. We went to assessments. I don't know if you've heard stories from, from Chad and Bliss, but the assessment is, is it's a grand time. <laughs> it's a grand time where 18 people stare at you and, and actually look at every freckle on your face and ask you questions about it. I'm not kidding. So we moved to Kansas City to pursue planting a church, and we struggled to get traction. We hit obstacle after obstacle. I wrestled with my calling. God, am I called even to be a pastor? There were many times in the past year where we wondered, God, what are you doing in our life? Is your gospel plan still at work in us? Is it still happening? Are we still in your path? Maybe you felt the same way and asked similar questions. Today, the, the, the text that we're in, the passage, or in the ending of this story of Acts, gets at this question, how do we faithfully trust God's gospel plan, this plan to extend and expand the gospel, not just in the world, but in our own hearts, when I'm struggling to see results, when I'm struggling to sometimes even feel changed by this? And there's three observations we're going to make in the text that I think are going to help us in answering this question. And it's going to break down like this. What does Paul find? What does Paul do? And what does Luke say? And so let's, 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 let's start right here with Paul's discovery. What does he find when he arrives in the area? Well, he's just been on this incredible journey. We've been looking at it for weeks, right? Chapters, seven chapters of his journey to Rome. And he comes into the area and what does he find? In verse 14, we're told that he found brothers and sisters he found Christians. And it says the brothers there, when they heard about us, as he's coming into Rome, they came as far as the form of Appius and, and three taverns. They must have been from Wisconsin, I think. And then we even see that Paul is allowed to stay by himself. All of these things are telling us something. He's met with Christian hospitality. The centurion who's guarding him allows him to stay for seven days with these brothers in uh, Petoli. Uh, he arrives in Rome and he finds more Christians. He's allowed then to stay by himself, not in a dungeon, not in a cell block, but by himself with a guard. Now think for a minute about Paul, how he must have been feeling at this time. And in one sense, you don't have to think hard because in verse 15 it says, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now think about it. Everything Paul has been doing has been to get to Rome 
to get the gospel there so that there might be uh, the story of Jesus spread out so that others could come to faith and gather together in the church. And he comes through this, I mean, trials, storms, shipwrecks, snake bites, and he finally arrives in Rome. And what does he find out? There's Christians here. It's working. The message of Jesus is making a difference. God's gospel plan has gone forth and it's not returning void. Now what explains this? Now you've got some fill in the blanks in your bulletin. So I expect to see pencils out. In every situation in all of life, here it is. Jesus prepares the path for the gospel. In every situation, you can go ahead and fill it in. There we go. Jesus prepares the path. I did some teaching, so, you know, this just kind of comes out. Jesus has gone before us in every situation is the truth. Think for a minute with some illustrations that we find in Scripture. Go back to the Israelites when they're about to take possession of the promised land. You remember the spies? They go in and they come back. And they're like, we can't do it. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're, ah! There's two guys. They say, yeah, we, we're going to do it. Well, 40 years go by because they had to spend another 40 years in the desert. Anyway, right before... Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8, the Lord says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then what happens? God takes them into the promised land and they conquer. Oftentimes, the enemies beat themselves. God prepared the path for his people, for the gospel. Think about before Jesus was born. Another illustration from Scripture. God promises in uh, Malachi and Isaiah in the Old Testament that he's going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for, and this messenger will be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, it says in Isaiah 40, who says, prepare the way of the Lord. And then in Mark 1, what do we find? John the Baptist appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Even Jesus had the way prepared before him. And then we think about Jesus, the illustration that he has gone before us in suffering, in temptation, in righteousness, in perfection, that he is our righteousness, in taking the punishment we deserve, and in the resurrection. Colossians 1 says it like this in, in verse uh, 17, that he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus prepares the path for the gospel. Now, does this mean like Paul, you're going to always be met with warm hospitality and gracious gifts? Nope. Does it mean you're always going to feel and experience in some tangible, goosebumpy way the presence of Christ? Either individually or through his people? No. But the truth is still the truth. That faithful trust in God's gospel plan is knowing and remembering that Jesus has prepared the path. And Paul finds this when he arrives in Rome. Later we see that this path has continued to be prepared as he's given an audience to present the gospel. And then he's given time to uh, live in Rome and, and continue his ministry. In every situation, Jesus has prepared the path. There's two points of application here that I'd like to point out before we move on to what Paul does. 
The first is that we need to be reminded and often that Jesus has gone before us. Think through the promises that we have in Scripture that, that tell us of this. Uh, Joshua 1, I will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 23, the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. Matthew 28, I am with you always, says Jesus, even to the end of the age. Jesus prepares your path. And secondly, on this point, don't underestimate how much God uses the power of presence. When, when we moved to Kansas City last year to pursue church planting, and we had some family in town, it was actually probably one of the most loneliest times in our adult lives, my wife and I in our married life. We believed moving there was part of God's gospel plan, and yet for a long time we had no idea why. We didn't see it being worked out. Now, a large part of this loneliness was due to something that was lacking in our lives. It was the first time in, in our married life, ever since we got married, we had always moved to a community, you know, a church community that we were a part of from the very beginning. And we didn't do that when we moved to Kansas City. We were, we were lacking gospel community. We were lacking, it's what we call here, spiritual intimacy. And I'll tell you, for, for myself Lacking that community of folks around me, encouraging me, reminding me of, of what God's plan is, reminding me that God has a plan even if I can't see it, it took a toll. I, was, I wrestled with some things. See, a huge part of our faithful trusting in God's plan is joining together to be encouraged that Jesus has gone before us. That the path has been prepared. So don't underestimate the power of presence. You may be a part of someone else's life reminding them that God in his gospel is moving forward in their lives. Or maybe together you join together as a community going out and saying, we are going to see how Jesus has prepared this path. Have you stopped to look back and thank God for his provision? That's the other thing I wanted to say on this one. Kind of like admiring the swing set. How have you seen God in his gospel plan at work? And you and those around you thanking God. That's what Paul did. He stopped. He kind of looked. Praise the Lord. There's Christians here. This gospel thing is working. And he took courage. And it's important that he took courage because we're going to see in this next point what he does after he takes courage. So let's go to the next point here. Paul's determination. What does he do? So Paul has this epic, tumultuous, did I say that right? Tumultuous journey in history, and he finally arrives in Rome, and what does he do? Okay, let's have truth tell here. What, what would you do? I'd hide out. I'd say, hey, Jesus, okay, I just saved a whole boatload of people, literally, I have healed people on an island after I got bit by a snake. I've planted a bunch of churches all throughout Asia Minor. I've written spirit-inspired letters. I think I put in my time. I'm ready to hang up my apostle hat. My gospel days are over. That's, I, I'm telling you, that's, I would be tempted to do that if it was me. Hide out in seclusion, quietly enjoy private living quarters, go into peaceful retirement, never to be heard of again. 
What does Paul do? What is he determined to do? After three days, he took three days rest. And then he calls together, verse 17, after three days he called together who? His enemies. The local leaders of the Jews, his enemies. Paul is determined. Now he goes into, he has two meetings with them. He has a first meeting here where he calls them and, and a few representatives and leaders come in. In verses 17 through 20, we see that he makes kind of three points. First in verse 17, I'm innocent. Verse 18, the Romans wanted to release me, but the Jewish leaders objected, so I appealed to Caesar. And verse 19, I'm not bringing any charges against you guys. I'm not going to hold it against you. Now, the Jewish leaders respond saying, we have received no letters from Judea about, they're kind of playing a little bit dumb. I mean, really, they haven't heard of Paul? Kind of hard to believe. Maybe it's true, but they're saying, we haven't received any letters. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil of you. Hard to believe. So they offer Paul an opportunity. Jesus is preparing the path. Remember that. We desire, verse 22, to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Bingo. What does Paul see? Open door. Right? Open door. So the leaders appoint a day for Paul to share his views. Now, do you think they're going to get more than they bargained for? Oh, yeah. So they appointed a day, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So now he's got a bigger audience here, and they want to hear Paul's views. Jesus is preparing the path, you see this, for the gospel. And Paul, determined to be faithful to God's gospel plan, says from morning till evening, he expounded to them the scriptures. It says he testified to the kingdom of God. And trying to convince them that Jesus, uh, about Jesus from both uh, from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he says, we have a king. We want to bow in submission to him. They all agree with that. Oh yeah, kingdom of God, we like that stuff. Then Paul says, Jesus is the king. The suffering servant, the, the, the Messiah who had come and been prophesied from the Old Testament. And keep in mind when he's talking about law of Moses and prophets, he's speaking about the this Old Testament what they called the scriptures. We called the Old Testament. What explains this determination that Paul has? How does he keep going? Doesn't this guy get tired? I mean, three days rest, really, that's it? And he keeps going, he keeps moving, he keeps sharing. What explains this? In May of this year, I got to see the clock, okay. In May of this year, uh, I learned that uh, I w- my family and I were going to be coming up here to Jacob's Well. The elders called me and they said, we, we want you to come and, and serve. We, we want to call you to be an assistant pastor here. And so I said, woohoo! And then about a week later, Pastor Dan called me and said, by the way, before you can move the presbytery, we've got to do this little thing called transfer your ordination, which initially was supposed to be like, hey, You've been an ordained pastor for 10 years. Woohoo! Like, come on in. I graduated from seminary 11 years ago. This turned into a full examination. I keep looking at Ron because he, like, he was on the committee. So I had to take seven written exams, which took on average between two and five hours. I had to be orally examined by the credentials committee, about a two to three hour process, and then stand in front of the floor of the entire presbytery so they could ask me about all my dark secrets. 
Now, normally, candidates have about, I don't know, four to six months to prepare for this. I had six weeks. After it's all done, you know, you stand before them, they send you out of a room, and then they deliberate, and they say, okay, we're going to think about the verdict for this guy. I don't, they're probably talking about what they're going to have for lunch, but I'm outside of this room, and I'm thinking they're going to, you know, they're not going to pass me. So think about what, what's on the line here. If I don't pass, if I don't get ordained, then we don't move to Green Bay maybe when we were thinking. I don't start on the job when I was hoping to. Potentially, maybe I have to look for another job. By God's grace, on July 8th, I passed. And I'm standing here. Now, do you know what I did after that? I got my phone out and I blew it up, like telling everybody I knew. I passed my ordination. Everybody I knew heard that Jonathan Whitley passed ordination exams and, and is, is ordained in the PCA. Isn't that what we do with good news? Now, let's, let's step back from this analogy and imagine something a little different. Same analogy, but a slightly different picture. Let's say I went through the process and I failed everything. Every test, every question, every single thing I failed. The presbytery brings me before him and they say, man, you failed it all, dude. All of it. They send me out of the room. They're deliberating about the verdict. What are they going to tell me? Now, let's say they bring me back in and they say, we've decided to go ahead and ordain you. Now, they wouldn't really do this, but just bear with me. And I say, how can this be? I failed it all. I failed everything. I mean, I didn't even answer John 3.16, God so loves the world. I, didn't, I couldn't tell you the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and George. What was it? I, can, I, I failed it all. And they said, another candidate has offered you his perfect scores, his perfect answers, his perfect examinations, and we're passing you because of what he did. Now, what would you do with that good news? You see, think, think for a minute about Paul's life. His entire life. Isn't that what happened to him? I mean, on a much grander scale. Isn't that what happens to us? Paul was actively murdering Christians. He was throwing Christians in jail. He was an outspoken opponent to the message that Jesus was the Messiah. And what happens? Jesus met him. Jesus confronted him in his sin, graciously forgave him, and called him to be a part of God's gospel plan. God the Father accepted Paul because of what Jesus did. So we think about Paul's determination, Paul's motivation to keep at the gospel plan. Uh, what is it that keeps him going? Jesus does. And it's this very simple and profound truth. Here's your next fill in the blank. You're ready for it. Are you ready? Jesus empowers and equips his people. You're going to have to fit a lot into that one blank. I expanded it. Jesus empowers and equips his people. He empowers his people by his spirit. He breathes new life into his people. He changes their hearts. He changes desires, changes thinking, illuminates the scriptures. And then he equips us with the greatest story of all time. The good news about Jesus. Now, Paul knew something that I think would be good for us to remember. He has been empowered by the Spirit. He's been equipped with God's Word. And he goes out and just is preaching it to anybody who will hear it. But he's remembering something. And this is sometimes hard for us. Especially when we think about 
We like, we like to see results. We like to be in control. We like things to happen when we want them to happen. And what do we see in, in verses 24 to 28? That Paul remembers. He remembers that at the end of the day, God is the one doing the changing. The Holy Spirit is the one doing the convicting. He says, you know, in verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then he goes in quoting from Isaiah. And in verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What explains that some believe and some don't believe when they hear this message? Is it the messenger is not doing a good job? Is it that, uh, you know, I'm not getting all my words ordered exactly right? Is it that I haven't, you know, positioned myself properly? At the end of the day, faithfully trusting in God's gospel plan is faithfully remembering that it is God who causes the growth. God who causes the, the hearts of, of men to be convinced and converted and transformed. It's not your job to force someone to believe. It's your job to tell them. It's not your job to conjure up some sort of goosebumpy feeling in yourself in order to convince yourself that you're a Christian. A pastor says that the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. You see, as a Christian, our job is to be faithful to the call to go and make disciples, to faithfully present the truth about Jesus as found in God's word. We don't have to go and make up something new. We don't have to try to make the message more novel, more relevant, more appealing. The good news about Jesus has been and already is all of this. Jesus prepares the path for the gospel. Jesus empowers and equips his people with a message. And lastly, let's look at the end here. What is it, as we're thinking about this gospel plan going forth, how does Luke finish the story? We have this incredible book about the expansion of the gospel, the establishment of the church, and how does Luke finish the book? What does he say? Does it seem like an odd ending to anybody? It did to me. When you, when you, if you read it like a book, what do you, you expect a, a beginning, middle, end, plot, Everything gets tied up and boom, great news, Paul conquered and this is how Paul's life ended and this is all it. And what do we, we find out? It sort of just ends. It's sort of this abrupt, he lived there two whole years, verse 30, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. What happens to Paul? Does he make it to Spain? He wanted to go to Spain. Does he die? Does, how did he die? Did he go back to Jerusalem? Why does Luke end the story like this? Why finish the book like this? Well, let's unpack briefly here these, these, these two verses. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, verse 30. Most likely, based on what I've been listening to and, and reading commentary-wise, this is probably Luke's way of telling us that Paul was set free after two years. That there was a statute of limitations that at the time that if the offending party didn't bring their accusation to Rome within two years, that the offender could be set free. Most likely, Jews did not do this. 
Because Luke says this, and according to church tradition, some sources that in the first few centuries of the church we have, after the two-year imprisonment, Paul was released, made it to Spain before he was imprisoned again. And that is when his second imprisonment in Rome, when he was eventually executed. Now, what did Paul do during these two years? What we don't see in the text is that he wrote more books of the Bible. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. What the text does say is that in verse 30, he welcomed all who came to him. He exhibited this this hospitality, grace-driven hospitality, we might say. Come on in. Come on in. I'm welcoming everybody. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, verse 31, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. He continued to preach. And what did he preach? Expositorily. He just went back to the, the scriptures. And it says, verse 31, without, with all boldness and without hindrance. Jesus prepared this path, made a way for the gospel, equipped and empowered Paul. And we see here, last of all, this last fill in the blank here, that Jesus preserved his plan. And he preserves his plan. Jesus sees to it that the gospel continues to expand. You see, the hero of the story in Acts is not Paul. That's why Luke finishes the way he finishes. It's not Peter. It's not even Luke. The hero of the story is Jesus. The hero of the story is that there's this gospel plan. And this is what Luke wants to leave us with. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Nothing can stop God's gospel plan. Nothing. Nothing can stop it. The story of the risen Jesus goes on, even though the story of Paul was cut short in our mind. Nothing can stop the gospel. You think for a minute, my coldness of heart can't stop the gospel? My hard-heartedness can't stop it? My unbelief can't stop it? All of that's going on in the world around me can't stop it. Churches I'm hearing are closing, but the gospel's still going to go forth. My neighbor still won't believe. But the gospel can't be stopped. In, in closing, I'm going to answer this question that, that in, in many ways I'm still finding out. But why did God call me to step down from being a pastor in Anna, Illinois, a town that no one here's heard of? And, and to step out and onto some journey as part of his gospel plan. Why did God do this? What purpose for the gospel did it have? Can I say looking back over the last two years that I believe these truths that I'm preaching today? When we moved to Kansas City, we moved there to church plants. And, and although I, there's a whole lot of other reasons I'm sure that I, I don't know why God moved us there, there's one big reason why I know God did move us there. You see, we, my wife was pregnant when we moved. And uh, we're kind of wacky. We do home birth. It's fun. Anyway, <laughs> we can talk about that another time. And we moved there, and we had to assemble a birth team. We get a midwife, we get a, you know, a doula, we get all these people, you know, that we gather together so that they can come into our home and help my wife scream her head off and have a baby. Now, moving to Kansas City, we assembled this birthing team, and it wasn't until the week, actually, it may be the day 
that my daughter Hope was born, that it all became at least a lot more clear why God had us there. See, there were two women on our birthing team who had lost children. One, one was our midwife who had lost a, a son. Uh, she was almost to full term. And the other was the doula who had lost her son who was at 22 years old two years ago. And both of these women were still hurting. I mean, I mean and, and you know, anyone who loses someone, you're always hurting. You don't really ever get over the loss of a loved one. You, you, you grow and you move on. And you, but the hurt was deep and, and, and cutting really to the core for these women. And we were able to minister to these, these women in, in ways that I can't even go into sharing right now because we just don't have time. But I'll, I'll summarize it with what the midwife said after the birth. And it was a wonderful birth experience. We're so thankful. It was our fourth and, and it was by far the best. But the midwife said afterwards, listening to you guys tell your story, because we told our story that night, reminded me why I'm a midwife. And I want to keep going because I want to serve women for Jesus as a midwife. And if I, I was thinking about quitting, she said. The other thing that I'd say about, so that's one thing, God's gospel plan moved forward. We had no idea how. Leaving Anna took me on this journey where I wrestled with my call. And I was sharing with, with someone this past week, a new friend here, that there was a part of me that, that I said, I, don't, I think I'm done with ministry. And then I had this realization that, you know what? God loves you because of what Jesus did and nothing else. Not because you are a good father. Not because you're a good pastor. Jesus doesn't love you because of these things. And I had this realization, go, wait a minute. I don't have to be a pastor for God to love me. I don't have to be X, Y, and Z for God to love me. He loves me anyway. Which my first response was to say, well, then why do ministry? <laughs> it's really hard. But then my second response was to say, holy cow. I, all I want to do is serve you now, Father. I had this clarity about my call when I realized God's grace like I'd never had before. Lastly, in thinking about God's gospel plan, it, it's led us here. We left Anna and it led us here and we're so thankful to be here, to be part of God's gospel plan here in Green Bay and at Jacob's Well. You see, is God's gospel plan moving forward in the world? The answer is yes. You see, I shared that other stat. I'm going to share a different one. In 2014, do you know how many churches opened? 4,000 Protestant churches opened their doors. We're, 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 we're about to plant a church or partner in planting a church. I don't know. Are we planting? I don't know who's planting it. Jesus is planting it, though. Is the gospel plan being stopped? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So how do you faithfully trust in God's gospel plan when you can't see or feel results? Remember his story. Remember your story and remember that nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing at all. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that nothing can stop your gospel plan, that you prepare the path, that you empower and equip your people with hope and with a message of grace. 
and that you preserve your plan, that even when we can't feel it, Lord, that you overcome all the obstacles. We thank you for that, Jesus. And we pray as, as we turn our minds to the table that you would fix our minds upon the grace that is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.